Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Welcome to Country Life. I'm Duncan Smith. Great to have your company. Call Sally Murphy TNA. Today, Leah meets a horticulture legend and proud centenarian. And a Hawke's Bay dad and daughter dog trialling duo chat with Maggie Tweedy. And it's farrowing time when Cosmo visits a free-range pig farm near Timaru. But first, to a roundup of the week's news. And Sally... Farmers and growers are being told to prepare for El Nino. They are. There are concerns the weather pattern could produce droughts as severe as the ones suffered back in 1982 and 1997. Dairy NZ's Sarah Spate says a sweltering summer could prove problematic for farming regions along the east coast and it's vital farmers are prepared. It's really simple stuff like making a plan and sticking to it thinking about things like how many cows can you realistically milk and feed well over the summer before it gets too dry, thinking about using nitrogen tactically to push feed ahead, either for the food grazing or to make a bit of silage to have in the stack, thinking about your supplementary feed, what you might need, getting crops in early if you're going to grow crops and use crops. Right, so from hot to cold, growers are out fighting a heavy frost on Wednesday. They were. After a severe frost last spring devastated crops in Bay of Plenty and Waikato, growers were better prepared when the same areas were hit again this week. Seeker's Chief Executive Michael Franks told us they had helicopters out nice and early. Hamilton blueberry grower Dan Peach says they also used frost-fighting techniques, so came away unscathed. However, there was some damage to asparagus crops in Horofenua, although nowhere near as bad as last year. A Northland fisherman is throwing support behind the charity which helped him through hard times while at sea. Yeah, this is a lovely story. First Mate provides counselling and financial support for fishers as they navigate choppy waters of the often stressful and isolating life at sea. Zach Olson called First Mate in its early days and says now he wants to help other struggling fishers to stay on course. You get into it because you love it and sometimes it's easy to sort of lose sight of the joy that it brings you in the face of everything else. Being at sea is amazing for your mental health, but well, for me it is. You know, I sort of lost track of that for a little bit, but I got support through them, and then it's really nice to be able to get out there and support an industry which has given me so much. Zach Olson is one of the charity's new adverse weather event navigators, set up to help those in the fishing sector deal with the aftermath of weather events like Cyclone Gabriel. Sounds really worthwhile. Now, from the sea to the land, and red meat exports are down, but it's not all doom and gloom. That's right. Beef and sheep meat exports were worth $730 million in August. That's a 16% drop on the same month last year. 
Meat Industry Association Chief Executive Sir Makarapiva has just returned from China and reports high numbers of all meat products sitting in cold stores. She says prices and demand won't pick up until that meat works through the system, which could take a full year. But Ms Karapiva says the US lamb market grew and globally there is still demand for the product. The returns that we're getting now are actually the same if not better to what we were getting pre-COVID. The last two years were record highs, you know, unprecedented record highs. And so of course when you compare it to 2022, the numbers look really bad. But uh, when you look at the last five years, we are performing uh, reasonably well, given all the economic uncertainty around the globe. And Otamatata Station's big muster went off without a hitch this week. Yes, 6,500 sheep were walked 20 kilometres down the road for shearing. Owner and fourth-generation farmer Hugh Cameron told us he's done between 40 and 50 musters in his career, and this week they had perfect weather. We're just bringing those hoggets back up, up the main road to be shorn, and, and then they stay up here as replacements and what have you. So it's uh, just an, an annual happening, I guess. And so what's the logistics involved with walking them 20 k's up the road? Just a uh, fair certain amount of uh, traffic control and uh, and manpower, really. Um, there's four of us on the mob with um, uh, someone else's vehicle front and back as well. This is Country Life on RNZ National 101 FM. A dedicated grower and advocate of the vegetable growing community, Alan Wilcox, has turned 100 years old. On the hills of Bombay, he grew potatoes, onions, cauliflower, cabbage, pumpkins and, for a while, kiwi fruit. when his two sons, Garth and Robert, joined forces with him. Now his grandson, Simon, works for a company started by Alan's uncle, A.S. Wilcox & Sons, showing that growing is well and truly in the family. Leah Tebbett travelled to Pukekohe this week to find Alan sitting near his dining table, jam-packed with birthday cards, and together they walk down memory lane. When one looks forward 100 years, it seems to be way in the future, but looking back, it doesn't seem like 100 years to me, but the last few days when I've heard people speaking about what I've done, it begins to dawn on you that I've done a lot more than I sort of recognised or remembered I had. <laughs> Are you feeling quite humble in it, I guess? Oh, yes. Know? Embarrassed, in fact. Yeah, really. Embarrassed? Yes. Oh, yes, because I don't, I've never liked, I, I don't like to be in the forefront of things. And my dear wife has passed away four years ago. She was even worse than me. If we went anywhere, she'd always want to sit in the back seat. <laughs> well, I'm not so keen to the very back seat, but I don't want to sit in the front seat either. <laughs> <laughs> For the past 100 years, Alan Wilcox's commitment to vegetable growing has been paramount. He's a life member of the Pukekohe Vegetable Growers Association, which he sat on for 39 years. He's also been the vice chairman of the New Zealand Potato Growers Federation and he's been the founding director of the New Zealand Horticultural Export Authority. And that's all just to name a few. But... His story really begins in 1939, when Alan was planting by hand and ploughing by horse. I was a little bit lucky because uh, uh, I was growing 
vegetables in the war years, and I was excused from territorial service because it was an essential industry. But of course, I was all kitted out to go when I was 21. I would have been going to the Pacific in the next lot, but uh, they didn't send any more, and I just missed that by a whisker, really. Yeah, mm, yeah, yeah. Mm, so mm, vegetable mm. growing's been an important part of the life as a result, oh, well, really, isn't it? With my brother, we formed a company, and we got bigger and bigger and bigger, and uh, my sons came into it, and uh, that's how I spent my whole life, really. Mm. Mm. Well, my brother and I grew a little bit on the farm because uh, Dad was... Uh, you worked on the farm f for no wages and he gave us a little bit of land to grow a little crop for ourselves. And uh, that's how my brother and I got started, really, together. We wanted to grow early new potatoes because the big Auckland market was really a good place to sell them in S September onwards. So my brother and I uh, leased a property at Bombay on a higher elevation, so away from the frost. That's where we started our business. The first year was a disaster. The market collapsed as we were ready to sell the crop. We were adjacent to Highway 1, and I saw the cars going back and forwards all the time, and I thought, well, one of those people would buy potatoes, so we took... Uh, 30 bags out onto the side of the road one afternoon and by 6 o'clock they were all sold at a, at a profitable price. So we set about doing that every day for the next two months and we sold the whole lot on the side of the road and we got enough money back to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well then the second year was a magnificent year and we got quite a good return so then we moved higher land again and, and managed to buy a small dairy farm and that became our headquarters for the next well, 40, 50, 60 years. But what I did enjoy with my occupation was the, the challenge and the changes that have happened over my lifetime. Scientific changes, sprays, anything, everything, machinery, it's just evolved in an amazing way. And, uh, Amazing when you look back over that. How does it differ? What what sort of machinery or, or sprays well, were you using when you first well, started out? We used to use simple Bordeaux spray for the potatoes and you had to mix it up and uh, dissolve the bluestone before the day you were spraying and it had to be used on the day when you prepared it. Now there's powdered sprays and liquid sprays. The application of them is safer. They mm. have to be safe ish because you've turned a oh, hundred. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> so. well that's the amazing thing because I, I didn't wear a mask when I was spraying. I didn't very often wear gloves mixing up and I probably did everything wrong although I, I was careful not to inhale any drift that came my way and that sort of thing but I've survived. <laughs> <laughs> Looking back on it all and seeing the different members of your family involved in what was your passion of vegetable mm, growing, mm, mm. what effect does that have on you? How does that make you feel seeing them follow in those footsteps? Oh, well, it's very good. Very good to see because uh, my grandfather had a big family and had four sons in farming and uh, my father was uh, very keen on the 
20 of the month check for his dairy produce over the years and he was <laughs> he was quite reluctant for my brother and I to branch away into vegetable growing because the income there was uh, intermittent to say the best you know uh, we couldn't rely on it always but uh, in the long run it worked out alright We have to ask how do you get to 100? Is there a secret or anything like that? I've been asked that question many times over the past week <laughs> and uh, it's very hard to say. I think the genes have a, a fair bit to do with it. Three or by four grandparents lived to around about their 90s. I suppose eat plenty of fruit and vegetables. <laughs> when I reached 80, I decided the world was moving towards computers and I thought, well, this is the way it's going to be if I don't do something I'll be left behind so I bought a computer and last week or so I went to renew my driving licence and uh, I wondered whether I, my doctor would give it to me but we had a memory test which I passed alright and when I went for him to do the medical examination he looked at the medical test and he said well I can't I can't really refuse you on this test, so I know I've, I've now got a licence for another two years. <laughs> so that's that's gold, uh, isn't it? Yeah, so that's all keeping the mind active. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not bad. I hope I can still drive safely at 100 years old, if I make it that far. Now, one last note from Alan Wilcox. He reckons, despite the changes that have happened in his lifetime, he believes family businesses will still be the basis of the vegetable growing industry in years to come. Now we're heading to a dairy farm in northern Hawke's Bay with Maggie Tweedy. She's joined by father and daughter Clark and Lana Crystal who share a passion for dog trialling. After relentlessly pursuing the craft for 20 odd years, Clark's persistence with the sport finally rewarded him when he won both the National and South Island Sheepdog Trials zigzag hunt back in May. Here's Clark Crystal speaking about the family's farming history in the Tutera district. I think we had a 100-year anniversary or reunion type thing for when my grandfather first came here. So that was 2021. So obviously 1921 he came here. He'd sort of come up from Christchurch, I think, from what I recall. Went to the war, come home, and they managed to get a bit of money and, yeah, bought the farm, farmed it ever since sort of thing. Yeah, Barney was saying, telling me the other day his only farming experience was holidays at Terrawitty Station in Wellington, which is where his... Mother was born, she's from there, so yeah, it was part, a bit of a family tie-up with there, and then um, they lived in a tent, him and his brother, for quite a while. Yeah, built the house, it's still there now. Granddad's brother, Willie, went down to Christchurch, they'd raised some money to for the farm. He, I think, got on the piss on the way back and blew it all. <laughs> <laughs> and got sort of exiled to Australia, so yeah, it was the end of... Yeah, great uncle Willie, I think, is part of the family enterprise. <laughs> He's out. Yeah, yeah, gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Has it always been a dairy farm? Uh, originally was a dairy farm, then it went to sheep and beef. <laughs> and then in 1981, I think, my dad converted it back to dairy. This was added on to the family farm. So I've got Alan Hart, used to own this, and milk juicy cows here, I think. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You farm this property with your wife, Shan. How long have you been working together? I was 23 when I come back here, so yeah, 25 years or something. Did a bit of rearing kids and that for a few years and then um, managed to get rid of them, 
got her in the shed again, so, yeah. <laughs> Farming is not the only interest keeping the crystals busy. Dog trialling is also in the blood. You know, you often hear your name associated with just having good working dogs, and, and that's a real pride for people locally. Yeah, oh, look, it's a pride for me too. I've always, what I've always wanted as a kid growing up, to have good dogs, and, I mean, it's just a thing that I like doing, and... Yeah, I mean, everyone's got their, got their interests, and it's when I come back dairy farming that I always said I wanted to keep, keep the dogs and keep training them and keep competing and dog trialling, which sort of makes it a little bit harder from the dairy farm, doesn't yeah, it? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. How many sheep yeah. do you have? I, oh, I've got more dogs than sheep. Yeah. So the sheep are getting worked pretty hard, the few that yeah. you do have. Yeah they're, yeah, they're a little bit used to what's happening, but, um, yeah, you make it work, eh? How many hours a week would you spend training your dogs? Oh, it varies so much, like, at the moment... Haven't done a lot with young dogs and mm -hmm. sort of do it, just working them. But yeah, when I've got a dog I like and I'm training it, you know, probably 20 minutes a night, half an hour, mm -hmm. you know, I'll go down to my training paddock. Here's Clark Crystal's daughter, Lana, talking about her early interest of dog trialling and why she fell in love with the sport. I always used to go with Dad to dog trials when I was like 10. I remember going up to Gisborne like, with Dad just watching and everyone would be like, why? Why would you come to this? It's so boring, but I just loved it. I was so, I loved watching Dad's dogs, and then, yeah, and then as soon as I got my own ones, I just, I just started trialing, and I, yeah, loved it. Yeah, but um, no, it's a real good thing to fill in your Saturday. Like, just meet heaps of people, and yeah, it always beers after. It's just real social, which I love as well. And what's it like in terms of the competition side? Are there many women that are competing against you or are you kind of a minority? There's a few. Like, there's definitely not that many, but, but yeah, there's getting more and more, especially over Taipei way. I feel like there's a lot more over there than over here, but, yeah, there's some real good ones too, like, that do just as well. Yeah. And are you competing in a women's class or an open class? Just the open, which is good. I'm glad it's that way. I hate it when they, they try and make it different. So it's just everyone's the same. I hate anything to do with, like, girls being different from the guys. Like, it's, it's with shepherding and that too, like, everyone's the same. Like, you don't. you just got to be the same, I reckon, yeah. And you're about to celebrate your 21st birthday next yeah. weekend. Yeah, it's actually a bit late too because it was meant to be in March but then the cyclone, all the roads were obviously closed and couldn't get anyone up here so it's good to finally have it, it will be, yeah. Mm. yeah. Tell me a little bit about what it was like coming from Taihapi and, and driving out to Tūtira that first time post-cyclone, what, what were your thoughts? Oh, it was, I hated it, eh? it made me so sad mm. driving, yeah, to what, I've you know, home for 21 years and then you come home and it's all in slips and the road was scary. The whole road was pretty much gone and it was just, yeah, it was pretty scary actually. But I couldn't come home for a couple of months but um, it was pretty scary. And it still is, like yeah. driving out here, it takes a hell of a lot longer to go around the Devil's Elbow and that's yeah, already a pretty yeah. treacherous piece of road, isn't it? Yeah, like coming home last night, like what usually takes about 40 minutes, it easily can take an hour. Do you think there's something about your upbringing that made you pursue a rural career. What do you think that was for you? Well, my mum does more here than my dad these days. When I wanted to go shepherding, it was n never, well, you're a girl. Like, it, there was never any of that. Like, it was just, just not treated any different, probably, because you're a girl. But, yeah, as I say, mum is, like, pretty hands-on, and she always has been. Lana works as a shepherd out of Taihape on a station called Kali Lanco. The property looks out at Mount Ruapehu and the Rangatiki River. 
She tells me it's been a cold winter. Well, we've had four dumps of snow this year. <laughs> In about three weeks, it was um, a bit of a shock. My first winter, it was all good, but yeah, this winter's been cold. It's finally starting to get warmer, which is good. Have you had any chance to go skiing, or have you been spending most of your weekends dog trialling? Uh, yeah, I wanted to go skiing. It's something I've always wanted to do, but, yeah, no, I haven't really got around to it. Um, yeah, I've been busy with these pups, actually. Your family's got quite a reputation for the puppies that, that do come out of, of this property, and I imagine that there are quite a few people who put their hands up when the crystals... will have a bitch and pup, should I yeah, say? Yeah, yeah. Like, I had two left over to sell, and I just put up the breeding, and they went pretty quickly. Mm. Um, but, yeah, Dad's dog, Hendrix, which was his best dog, all my dogs go back to that, so it's all in there, all in their breeding and that. But yeah, yeah, they're not hard to get rid of, really. Yeah. So do you reckon you'll sell all fourteen? I actually, I'm so bad at selling dogs. I ended up giving away eleven of them, <laughs> and I sold the last three. So they've been pretty expensive to rear. So I might get my money back with the three that I've sold, but probably not. <laughs> but you're not motivated by money, clearly. No, no, definitely not. I've enjoyed it so much. Everyone says how much of a hassle having pups is, but I just loved it. It was so cool. What's the key to making sure that they all survive in the thick of spring? A heat lamp is magical. Okay. Like, I reckon that's what would have kept them all right. Oh, having 14, like, she could only feed 10 at a time, and she, so she'd have a big pile of them, and she'd swap them around, like, which ones needed feeding. She's really, she's really smart, and just what helped was her being such a good mother. Mm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, fantastic. And tell me about Hendrix. He was probably when Dad started doing the best, like got into five runoffs with him and he got second in a New Zealand twice with him but didn't win it. But he died when he was six to a um, twisted gut, which was real gutting. But he had about 50 bitches come to him over his time. Like he was, you know... He left a big legacy. Yeah, yeah. And all our dogs now, they all somehow go back to him. Was he a heading dog? Hunt away. Hunt away. Yeah, so... Like, my Belle, she's a granddaughter to him, which means this is a great granddaughter to him. Yeah, yeah, at your feet. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Lana Crystal was wrapped when her dad won both the National and South Island Sheepdog Trial zigzag hunt this year, an extraordinary result he'd been working toward for years. Well, like, he is the most competitive person, and he's he's been in 13 runoffs before that one, so, and he'd never won, so he was getting pretty... Pretty disheartened. Like he'd come yeah. home from a champs just like gutted because that's all he is ever wanted. Mm-hmm. And the coolest thing was that like because I qualified my two dogs, so I was down at the champs with him. Never forget it. Like it was the coolest thing. He was one of the last runs of the whole champs, so we were so happy. Then we had to have the runoff and then wait all day for the results, and it was the scariest. Like, I actually felt sick all day. It was so hard, but it was the most amazing feeling when he got it. What's special about this dog that he's got now, Jude? He's always loved Jude. She's actually, a, yeah, she's a granddaughter to that Hendrix yeah. out of a dog he had now, which he did um, well with. It's funny because Dad's very big on manners and that with his dogs, but Jude just does what she wants. She's a bit precious to him. After pursuing the craft for more than 20 years, it was about time he took out his first national championships title. A surprise to Clark following the challenging time the family faced post-cyclone pretty happy the result we had and favourite dog at the moment so yeah goes back to Hendrix sort of thing so competed with her since she's young she's a really good farm dog as well okay. it's probably more her big thing you know she does all my work at yeah and she's easy to work works with me sort of mm-hmm. a bit of a mate 
Is it kind of sometimes about luck on the day as well? When you are, sometimes you find your dog just isn't listening, is a little bit pig-headed. Do you get a sixth sense or is there kind of like a feeling that today is the day? How does each competition differ in that way and how do your dogs react? Oh, look, there's a massive amount of luck. There's no doubt on that, but the better you are, the luckier you are too, mm. maybe. So. Everyone thinks today's their day, don't they, when they're competing or else they're not in it for the right reasons. You, you always think you're going to win it, I suppose. I mean, who doesn't? You know, you wouldn't be doing it otherwise. But to be fair, after the cyclone, we went down and, yeah, we were, I just thought we were going down for the trip, really, to be honest. After I'd, I'd hardly done any trials and mm-hmm. all the work we'd been doing at home has been all fencing and tidying up work. It's not stock work and not really work to prep a dog mm-hmm. for competing, you know. Like, um, yeah, so may- maybe that was a good thing. Maybe it had the pressure off me and the dog and it yeah. just made it work. Clark Crystal has been the secretary of Tutera and Puterino District's Dog Trial Club for more than two decades. His uncle Pat held the position for 14 years and his grandfather was a founding member and helped set the club up. Yeah, I've been part of that for, yeah, 25 years now, I think. I've been secretary of it. Wow. Yeah, so sort of when I first came back to the area, got given the job and had it ever since. And I think it's, yeah, you've sort of got to die to lose it. There's probably half a dozen active dog trialers. It brings the whole community to come along and help. I mean, that's a great thing about it, is it? There's not a lot that goes on in a district anymore socially. The cyclone's a little bit different. That brought everyone together, but something like the Dog Trial Club, and it's a good way to catch up, meet people. And my kids, since birth, have been coming to the trial. Eh? Like they've been since just little tackers, weeks old or sort of few months old. They've all been down there. We haven't missed a trial, and, and I don't think Lana's missed a trial her whole life, you know? I've always taken the girls with me, judging. When I judge, they come and help, and mm. competing probably ever since they're little, you know. I'll take them out of school for the day. I don't let school get in the way of their education, so make sure I take them <laughs> for a bit of a trip, you know. Always been good company and might have been sowing the seed a wee bit, you know. Got Lana competing and... how yeah, you sort of... Let's go. Now we're off to a special spot on the Crystals Farm where generations of the family have trained their dogs. Um, we're just down in Dad's sheep paddock. He's only got, how many sheep's there? About 10. So they're pretty used to getting trained. The calves make it kind of difficult. Yeah, That's you've right. got a whole yeah. lot of calves here that presumably have just split off because you're you're about to start feeding them? Yeah, they're just, they're on once a day now, so they come out into the paddock, but they take up the training paddock, which is a bit annoying, but... Um, <laughs> yeah, it makes it a bit of a challenge with the dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was just training Belle a little bit because she's just come back from having her pup, so she's been off work for a while. What uh, role does the whistle play? Do some people not even use a whistle and just use commands? Well, you can either, yeah, whistle, use word commands. Some people whistle through their teeth, which I can't do, but... I don't use any other command. Oh, for Belle, I use She's got quiet sides as well, but that's it. Um, I only ever use my whistle, so it's a pretty important thing. Since Belle's a hunterway, she barks to get things moving, but she, she quite likes to work quietly, like a heading dog, so I can get her to like run out quietly by just using a voice command. But if I use her whistle command, she'll bark. She's probably my best hunterway and my best heading dog. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dana Rowe, I'm a dairy farming trainee and you're listening to Country Life on RNZ National. Farming life, you beauty. Now we're heading to High Grounds Farm in South Canterbury with Cosmo Kentish Barnes. He's with Hamish and Angela Cottle, who got into free-range pig farming there in 2011. 
After initially sending 12 pigs a week for processing, they now have 250 breeding sows. The couple take Cosmo to the other side of the farm to see the farrowing girls. This is Hamish. So we're in a place called Lyledale. We're actually at the top of Lyledale, so we're about 20 minutes southwest of Timaru, and we've got sheep, predominantly Texels, along with a Texel stud. We do free-range pork, and we've also got beef cows as well, Angus and Angus Cross beef cows. And are those your sheep in the paddock beside the road? Yep, so those ones there, they're Texel stud ewes, so they're about to lamb now, and we'll see shortly um, some that have lambed. Um, So that particular mob there, they're a mob of singles, and we'll just drive through shortly a mob of twins down on the bottom flat. Good conditions for lambing? Very good, yeah, we've had a great run. Hopefully it continues because we're just starting to crank into it. So we'll just go into this gate here. These are some of the Texel stud ewes that are lambing at the moment. I'll grab the gate. Yep. Looks like there's a couple of ewes lambed over there. That's quite good. They've gone to the edge of the paddock where the trees are hanging over the fence for a bit yeah, of a nice um, bit of shelter there. A bit of shelter. Yeah. Here we go, newborn lambs. Yeah, yeah. But this is ideal, actually. She's a she's a good, strong type of ewe. And we've got a good set of strong twins. Nice and mobile, got up on their feet straight away, and they've both had a good suck. Mm. She's a good milky, milky type of ewe. Yeah. Now tell me about the farm. How much land have you got here? And how long have you been farming? Uh, well, here? I came home back in 2006 to carry on farming because it's something I'd always been interested in and before that I was over in Scotland in the Isle of Man and prior to that I was in Australia working on big cattle stations doing horseback musters and helicopter musters and it was all quite a wild sort of place it was it was <laughs> it was we're cap- capturing Mickey bulls and tethering them to trees and then trying to get them into trucks a bit like bull catchers you see on TV now yeah we were doing that but prior to that I did a butchery apprenticeship in Christchurch so done a few things, but yeah, I came back home to answer your question, 2006, and started helping mum and dad on the farm, and we quickly realised that to draw extra income from the farm, we needed to ramp things up a bit, so consequently that's why we got into the free range pigs, which we'll show you shortly. Mm. Um, but total farm now is 370 hectares. And Angela, are you from a farming background? Yeah, so my great-grandfather was a gun shearer out central west New South Wales and he had a farm. My grandmother would always say she was from the bush. That was her claim to living in the country and she'd always talk about how she'd ride her horse to school and things. So, But that family farm was taken over by my great-grandfather's son and the sister's I don't quite know what went on, but the Mm. sisters didn't get much of the farm, so it went to my cousin's side of the family. But we always had land as a kid, just a few acres, and I always loved working on farms. So during school, I did a bit of dairy farm work, and then when I finished school, I thought I really want to stay in agriculture, but I didn't actually know what I wanted to do. So when I chose my uni degree, it allowed me to choose whether I was interested in animal production or agronomy 
Angelo graduated from Sydney University with a farm management degree and now she's working for PGG Wrightson. So my role's in the technical extension team so I do a lot of extension work with the people that are on farm so the technical field reps so they, they're the ones talking with farmers all the time and my role is to sit behind them and basically take my knowledge and help them so they can help their farmers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hamish tell me about your parents because back in the 90s they were quite interested in organics weren't they? Organic farming. Yeah they were yeah yeah. Dad had brought the farm and he moved here in 89 and took it over as a going concern and he's quite passionate about heavy horses and things like that um, and he'd, he'd have the odd animal just get sick and the farm before had been cropped a lot and there was a lot of chemical and stuff used and he ended up getting, long story short, one of his uh, favourite mares got sick uh, along with a steer as well and he got some blood tests done and the liver was packing up and they'd actually found these chemical residues still in the blood and it was it was affecting the liver of these animals. So it just got him thinking, you know, where are we going with the, all these chemicals? And he um, just decided then and there to, to stop using the chemicals and to let things recover. And so I remember as we were kids and I was going through high school, mum and dad had, had um, got BioGrow certified and, yeah, farmed organically and just tr try and let the farm heal, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, yeah. How long did they farm organically? They were actually... Still organic until it was probably just before 2010. It was sort of not long after I came home. And again, with, with us needing to ramp up productivity of the farm, um, organics is good, and it was good for mum and dad. But as soon as you start to put pressure on things, cracks start to appear pretty quick. And we found that we couldn't unfortunately, found that we couldn't farm organically and reduce our stock numbers and still be able to draw enough income for an extra person on the farm. So we made the decision then to stop with the organics, but we're still sort of holding on to a lot of the mm. organic principles that we picked up along the way. And the way we're farming our free-range pigs now is a very biological-type way of doing things. It's, it's um, We're using the pigs as a, a bit of a tool, really, to help improved fertility on the farm and they're farmed in a rotation mm. around the farm and we're utilising the pigs and what they leave behind to improve soil and they're in a slow but continuous rotation right around the whole farm so over time the whole farm benefits from having the pigs over it. There's no fertiliser as such that goes on but every time the feed truck comes in with pig feed that is essentially fertiliser because you're bringing in this nutrient, the pigs are taking what they need to grow for meat and bone and then the excess gets left behind and then the excess then is mopped up with catch crop which is oats and grass that's harvested and then back into permanent pasture so there's no fertiliser truck per se but there is nutrient coming in in a slightly different form. And great that you can rotate this system all around the farm. Yeah, yeah. There are some areas that we deem too steep so because they do root it up a bit in the winter especially, we, we just won't have the pigs over it. And then in the bottoms of gullies or swales, because we're rolling, we purposely fence those off 
so they can grow a bit of grass and if we do get any runoff it, it filters through that so we're not losing our topsoil it's it's probably our most precious asset really mm. yeah. oh lovely well should we head over to the pig farm yeah absolutely Come to the area where the free range pigs are. So, what's this road that we're standing on? Where does it go to? So, this is Bluecliffs Road, and that way to our right goes all the way down to the coast and comes out at St Andrews, and that way to our left goes all the way up to Bluecliffs Station and links on to Backline Road, which hugs along under the Hunter Hills. And you've got land on both sides of the road. Yes, yeah, yeah. Now, and we can see the piglets there running around. Yeah, so this is our farrowing area. So um, when we have our batches of sows ready to have their litters, they come to this part of the farm. Just watch yourself there, Cosmo. Oh, oh yeah. Thank you. Just about tripped up on a electric wire. Yeah, they come to this part of the farm and have their litters so we do a batch farrow system which means our breeding sows are running batches and we aim to have about 35 36 sows farrow in each batch so every three weeks we've got a batch come in and we'll have their have their litters and that batch will all farrow within maybe three or four days of each other so it's quite a tight condensed farrowing and there's there's advantages in that it means that all of those, when it comes to weaning, all of those piglets can all be weaned and run as one group, and then the sows will go back to their gestation paddocks as one group as well. And if you think about a pig, they're an amazing animal really, because if you can compare it to a cow or a sheep, a sheep will give you maybe 1.5, 1.6 lambs a year, if you work it out on average, and a cow will give you a calf a year. But if you look at a piglet, she can give you over two litters a year and in each of those litters you know we might wean 11 and a half or 12 piglets so she can give if you're looking at 2.2 litters a year she can give you 25 26 piglets a year that's a, a pretty amazing productive animal Incredible. Yeah. yeah yeah for our listeners who aren't familiar with pig farming what's the difference the main difference between free range outdoor pig farming like here and a modern indoor pig farm? Uh, well, free range, um, obviously the sows are outside all the time. And if you look at these, um, this is our farrowing paddock, so each sow's got their own individual hut that they'll have their litter in. And the piglets have got the ability to run around outside once, they've, once they decide to come outside the hut. And they tend to go just wherever they like. They, they get in little gangs and they might run away across the other side of the paddock and they'll see you coming and they'll all run back to mum and they all they all know which hut to go to it's it's amazing so yeah the, the main difference is that and then um, indoor there's some pretty good indoor facilities now but um, predominantly they're farrow in a crate and then when they're weaned they're, they're finished indoors as well so whether that be on straw bedding or slats yeah they're farrowing in more of a, a pen aren't they yeah yeah, yeah. 
Uh, when we first got here, the sow closest to us walked towards us, gave us a sniff, made sure we were not a threat, and then she went back to her piglets. Yeah. They do act different when, when there's strangers about too. Myself and the workers, we can come down here and just walk amongst them and they're good as gold, but Even as soon then. as there's someone that's not normally here, you can just see them sense mm. they're just a bit wary. Mm. Yeah. Would they attack someone? If they're really threatened or especially they can get quite protective straight after they have their litters. Firstly, they sort of give you a warning sort of bark yeah. and it's enough to make you start. And then um, if you're fostering some piglets on, so maybe one sow's had a big litter and she's got too many because a, a pig can only rear as the number of piglets as the number of teats she's got. She, mm. can't, she can't handle any more because a piglet actually goes back to the same teat every time. So if one a sow's had more piglets than the number of teats she's got, you've got to take some piglets off. So if you're carrying piglets along and then they start to get a bit squirmish and you're walking from this hut, maybe five or six huts down, you've got to walk past sows that, are, that have had litters and they're sort of quite protective. And the piglet starts to squeal and get upset. Those sows that you're walking past, they can, they can come out and yeah. they, they want to know why. Put why that baby it? down now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so it can, yeah, so it's like walking the gauntlet, really. Now, most of the buildings, what would you call these things? Farrowing houses. Now, most of the farrowing houses here look a bit like yurts. This is a housing system that you've been developing. Yeah, so these are based on a really old design called a Ruakura round farrowing house. So i tell you what, they knew something back in the day. Back in the 50s, these were developed as a permanent structure. So they're round, but internally there's a piglet safety zone. So when Ruakura developed them, there was a Dr. Smith who had developed these. And he, even right down to the, the actual size of the structure, the cubic feet of airspace, which was an area that the sow could heat adequately with her own body heat, the ones he designed, they were designed to have a heat lamp in the middle for where that piglet safety zone was. But because we're free range and the huts are being moved around, we've modified it and made this a, a transportable structure. So the... the oh, I can see you've got some hooks there yep. so you can lift them up with, yep. a, with a tractor. Yep, yep. So they get lifted up and moved. And if you just look in the side, there's a sow in this one. Oh, there we are. The sow is some lying down with some piglets, which are having some afternoon tea. Yeah. Yeah, so she's quite content. So she, the sow can come and go as she pleases. So she just gets in, walks around the centre structure, yep. which is a little hot box area with a lid, and the oh, piglets camp in there. So it's got a sack curtain on the front. So it's like a, um, a room within a room yeah. that stays a bit warmer. How do you get the piglets to discover this inner room in the first place? When she first farrows... Or even if I go back a bit, before she farrows, the day before, you make sure all the straw is nice and flat. If this centre part's packed too tight with straw, it creates a wall and the piglets can't get in there. So you make sure all the bedding's nice and flat. And then as soon as she farrows, we carry 10 litre containers and fill them with hot water and place that in this little creek hot box area. And a piglet's actually got heat receptors on the, the end of its snout, mm. and that's why they're so quick at coming around and getting onto the teat. But that actually, they actually seek out the warmth of this hotbox area. It draws them in. So once they realise that that environment in there is far more warm for them than, than the sow's main hut, 
they just keep coming back to it. A couple of piglets are fighting over a teat. And uh, just so our listeners know, we are kneeling down by the entrance and we can see uh, the sow there who has been feeding her piglets and she's pretty cosy in here, isn't she? Yeah, it's nice. Well, the roof's um, insulated with polystyrene. The sides are clad with plywood and it's about an eight-foot diameter circle. She's a big girl. How heavy would she weigh? Uh, generally, they get a lot bigger than her. They can probably get up to 250, 300 kilos. I would say she'd be... 180 to 200, something, something like yeah, that. Yeah, and she's moved positions and now she's lying down again. And uh, someone's just turned up. Who's this? This will be Ben. Hi, Ben. How you doing? Good, thanks. What's happening today? Oh, at the moment I'm just running around feeding the sows out of the tractor. But the sows in the lactating pens where we are now, I sort of feed them in a pile and they're all fed individually. Mm. The ones that are due to farrow actually fed them this morning. It's the ones that are um, with the older piglets I'm feeding now. Yeah, but the dry side paddocks, we tend to feed them in a long line because they're in mobs or batches of sort of 12 to 15. And what's your background? How did you hook up with Hamish and Angela? Um, well, I saw a job advertised on Trade Me, really, and applied for it, and here we are, I guess. Yeah. Where were you working before? Uh, before I was up at Mount Summers working on a farm, um, mainly beef and dairy grazing. But previous to that, I've got more experience with pigs. Yes. What do you love about pigs and working on a pig farm? Pigs are quite different to other animals to work with. They're quite unique characters and more individuals other than sheep and cattle tend to follow. And I like working up close with the pigs as well. Work one-on-one with the animals more often, more so. What's the most challenging part of your job sometimes i guess trying to deal with a protective mum when she's just had her babies and she doesn't want you close but you're trying to help what advice would you give to someone who's being attacked by a protective sow well firstly if you're ever going near a protective sow you always make sure you've got a pig board in your hand so you can use it as a barrier between you and her like a shield basically yeah the teeth are pretty sharp as well So what happens to the pork that you produce on this farm? Uh, well, well, I think we're quite fortunate to have a, quite a good relationship with Harmony and Neat Meats. They're a company which we've joined up with and they're doing all the marketing of our pork and they distribute it wherever they see fit. So with it being free range, it's sort of a, a discerning type clientele, I, I would think. And um, all of their other suppliers have got, have got organic beef suppliers, taupo beef, spring coastal lamb, things with a bit of a story and we sort of fit into their marketing story as well. So mm. the sun on their back and the dirt between their toes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is the biggest challenge pork producers have at the moment in terms of trying to get their meat into new markets? Costs, I think, are probably the biggest challenge at the moment. Um, price of grain and price of feed, price of everything, really. But we're also... There's huge competition with imported product at the moment as well. Mm. Heaps of imported pork over in supermarkets. Over 60% of pork in supermarkets is imported. And it's predominantly your um, processed pork, so your bacons and that sort of thing. There's not much fresh pork 
imported fresh pork sold in the supermarkets, but it can be produced, mass produced so cheap overseas in countries where maybe the grain is subsidised or the pork farmers themselves are subsidised. They've got lesser standards that they've, they need to adhere to. And welfare. Mm, mm. What would you like the government to do to try and showcase New Zealand pork? I wonder if it's on their menu in their cafe in Wellington. Is it? We'll have to find out. Maybe you could ask someone if yeah. you're up there, Cosby. I just think it's a bit misleading, the packaging at the moment. I think it needs to be clearer to the consumer so the consumer can decide. So at the moment, currently, if you look carefully at the packaging, you know, on fine print on the back, it says, made from local and imported ingredients, may contain pork from one of the following countries, and it lists 11 or 12 countries. Well, I, I don't see why they can't have a on the front of the packaging if it is imported just a big stamp saying imported pork mm. and then the consumer can easily look at it pick it up and say oh no it's imported all oh, that stuff's New Zealand stuff I'll, I'll buy that just to support local but that might be difficult for a government especially if they have signed trade deals with with other countries yes absolutely and porks the poor cousin and um, gets the raw end of the deal when we're doing trade agreements with other countries we might benefit with beef and lamb going one way but consequently we're going to take the pork coming this way from another country who's maybe a, a bigger pork producer than we are so that's what we're up against. Now um, Hamish we are approaching a sow who's got about what 10 or 11 piglets suckling on her what's her technique what does she do? She'll lie there and the piglets will just nuzzle and nuzzle and nuzzle and, and then all of a sudden her grunting will change and that's when she's letting down her milk and the piglets all of a sudden will stop nuzzling and they'll just suck flat out for about 30 seconds and then they'll go back to nuzzling and that's her letting their milk down and she probably does that every 20 minutes, half hour. And you were saying earlier that piglets always go back to the same teat. Yep, yep, yep. So from the first couple of days they get their teat and that's their teat for the rest of the time that they're on mum. And you often find that the, the ones that have got a front teat do slightly better than the ones that have got a back teat. Hamish Cottle ending that story. Cosmo was also talking to Angela Cottle and Ben Lester at the Cottle's free-range pig farm near Tibaru. To see some great photos of the sows and piglets, just type RNZ Country Life into your browser. Now we had a great response to last week's quiz question to win a copy of Michael Barker's book, Barkers of Geraldine, 50 Years Preserved. The question was, what's the name of the mulled wine that Michael mentioned in his story? The answer is Mountain Thunder, and the first correct email that came in was from Maria Lovelock. Well done Maria, we'll get the book out to you next week. Yes, well done. OK, that's all we've got time for. Ka kite anō. Have a great weekend. Catch you next time. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. 
To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.